episode 68 of The Passive Hang. Today, big moment guys, we have John Yuen joining us on the podcast. Now, I've been a big fan of John's work for a long time, as I know probably a lot of you are out there. Lover of cats, very, very great, graceful mover. And from what I've heard from a lot of people, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I went into this conversation to try and find out if there were any significant turning points for John in his training journey, as well as ask about his approach to programming, which he writes a lot about in his emails, which I highly recommend. They're called A Body of Work. You can sign up on his website at unjohn.com. Otherwise, this was a lovely and inspiring conversation with a wonderful man and teacher, John Yuen. Well, we have John Yuen on the podcast. I'm really happy to welcome you here to this space. Welcome to the Passive Hang, John. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I highly appreciate it. I think um, I was wondering where to start with this conversation. I mean, John, I've been a longtime follower of a lot of your your content and are always really appreciative of what you share. And something that I always notice in your videos that you share is one, cats, and two, Mm -hmm. the most unique pair of stretchy jeans that I've ever seen before. Or, or found in any, any shops as well. So, you know, I, I don't think we can start with, with any sort of conversation without mentioning, you know, going, you know, let's talk a little bit about your, your, your cats and how many you have and your, your fascination with them. And then also, I mean, for the listeners out there, if they want a pair of jeans like this, where do they get them? I mean, the, the secret, Fionn, is, of course, that all my jeans are sewed by only the finest cat fur. Um, <laughs> That's what gives it the elasticity and also the power to any of the very, very few skills that I might have. Uh, this explains no, so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's all connected. Um, no, my my fascination with uh, cats, that's just in general, like my fascination with animals. I am I, I'm blessed to have an older sister who has a farm and a ton of animals and has always had a fascination for animals. And I guess in some way that rubbed off on me, I, I am uh, thoroughly enamored with any uh, uh, four-legged creatures, basically. Um, and the fact that I have cats is actually pretty random. I'm, I'm mostly a dog person, but I ended up having cats because one of them, well, my sister said, so there's this one kitten on the farm and that I cannot give away to anyone that uh, is outside of the family. And so I said, mm-hmm. I'll take it. I'll, I'll bear the burden of uh, sustaining the life of this creature. And um, yeah, took the cat back to my apartment. And then every time I walked out of my front door to leave this kitten alone in my apartment, uh, my ovaries would implode. Uh, everything hurt. Uh, I didn't have the heart to leave it alone. And so I rang up my sister and said, do you have another cat? And she did. And then after two days, I suddenly had two cats. Um, 
but yeah, I, I don't plan on having that many more cats. And mm. I think I'm going to move on to, to another species. I think uh, the next, the next creature I'll involve in my <laughs> life is going to be a dog. Well, fast and furious with that transition, you know, from one side to, to another, but um, yeah, I've never, yeah, I like, I like living a bit recklessly, <laughs> bit of a wild card. I'm looking forward to, you know, at some point where I notice something new in the background and, you know, whether it's a dog or yeah, maybe I can leave it to you to, to surprise us actually, but um, I'm looking forward to whatever choice you, you may land on. Well, I hope to keep things exciting for you. Uh, and, oh, you also asked me about genes. The secret is Elastane. You just need, you just need to find straight two genes. Um, and you also need to find the, the proper um, testing routine for genes in, in like uh, changing rooms in different stores, uh, you know, make sure that you have enough space in the changing room to do a Cossack squat. Um, maybe you won't have space to do a middle split unless you can do it like standing. Um, but in general, <laughs> like, you know, just, just go for, uh, find a good, like, uh, brand of clothing that makes, uh, pants for climbers. And then basically you're going to have pants that are, um, that last a bit, they, they take a, they, they can handle a bit of beating and they have mm. a lot of stretch. There you go. There you go. Find a yeah. climbing brand and especially find a climbing brand whose store has a big enough changing rooms for you to express your range of motion. Yes. And bonus if they have cats. Can't forget the cats. <laughs> exactly. So on your website bio, you know, you're uh, currently living and residing in Norway, um, but you do mm -hmm. start off with this phrase, which says, you know, the, the date and place of John's birth is as of yet unknown. Um, and, you know, I don't want to spoil any secrets that you have a, around th that with your, um, within this conversation, but I do want to ask, you know, where did you grow up? It, it was in Norway as well, where you grew up. Yes. Yes. I'll, um, yeah, I was I was raised, born and raised here in Oslo, Norway, and uh, I'll betray now my my website bio by revealing the year I was born. I was born 1987, so I'm 35 years old. Um, and yeah, I've been living here for almost my entire life, except you know a lot of traveling and uh, uh, a patch of time where that I spend in China. Mm. Well, that was a passive hang exclusive. You know, we got that on, on the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please, uh, listeners, subscribe to Fayon's Patreon, where we will reveal the date I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about these Chinese roots because, you know, you just mentioned it there um, as well. You know, what was it like growing up in Norway as someone with like a, a Chinese background? It was pretty weird. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I lived in a part of Oslo where there weren't really a lot of people who, who had like um, foreign roots, except uh, especially like foreign roots from that part of the world. Hmm. Um, and so I think there was a bit of like, I wouldn't say identity crisis, but it was uh, difficult to find 
role models. It was difficult to kind of um, understand my place in the world. Mm. Um, but I am ever grateful for it. I'm very, very grateful that I had the opportunity to look at two very different cultures and see how both of these cultures, they, they were trying to deal with the same questions, but they both answered it in totally different ways. And it worked in their own little way, the Norwegian way and the, and the Chinese way. So it's good to see that there, you know, there are multiple answers to the same questions and there are many ways in which one can live one's life. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you appreciate that because I think sometimes when you're a kid, everything can be like a little bit confusing, right? Like for myself growing up here in Australia uh, with an Asian background as well. Um, yeah, I feel, it, you always come to that point sometimes where you get this realization, you're like, oh, like I am different. And my parents do do all these different things. Why did they do that? Is that weird or are they weird? I'm not sure what's going on. But then as you grow older, you're like, oh, actually, no. That, that was pretty cool, actually. Well, you know, if you take that in, in the most positive way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Did you, um, did, did your parents find it easy to settle down in, in Melbourne? I think they had their own difficulties, definitely, for sure. Um, I think it was, um, yeah, it was okay. But um, like with... Uh, they had their own community, so that also helped. Like, and mm-hmm. here, here in Melbourne during that time, they were also really fostering a lot of net immigration into the country. So they kind of had opened the doors um, to try and get more and more people in. Um, but it wasn't uh, so early that maybe like 10, 20 years before, they kind of had the opposite policy where they were trying to keep most people out. So I think, mm. yeah, there definitely was some sort of friction there. And then maybe the biggest impact that that left over the shadow of that was um, like my parents purposely chose to speak English at home, uh, even mm. though that they can speak, you know, many man, um, different dialects and, and Mandarin as well. And so when I grew up, I never really learned Chinese, um, which would have been nice skill to have if, if that was integrated into you know um throughout my my childhood but uh yeah that was also i think to try and help uh, me and my brothers assimilate quicker into australian society hmm. so did you find that they like they encourage you to find your own place in melbourne melbourne did they did they want you to have the did they encourage you to have like the immigrant experience or did they want you to have like your own experience? If that makes sense. Uh, I would say like they, they fostered like a bit, a bit of both, but then, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a big stereotype and it's probably global as well. Right. Like you come from Asian parents and your Asian parents want you to do really, 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 really well in your studies. Right. And Mm -hmm. there was definitely massive pressure around that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you survived. You're here. I did. I did. And now I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me now, dad. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to ask when growing up as well, um, just continuing on this thread, was movement always a passion of yours when grew- growing up? And, you know, did you have any other passions or interests as, as well? 
Mm, yeah, no, I was I was not a physically active kid. I um and I think this this might have been in part due to, you know, my my difficulty dealing with with the local culture and and maybe just reality in general. I was uh I was a daydreamer and I found that the the easiest mode of transportation that would allow me to soar through the astral realm was uh, music. So I spent a lot of time listening to and making music. And then as time passed, I found out that music moved me and I started moving, moving my body. Mm. Um, so, you know, while all the other kids were out playing soccer, I would be sitting sitting on the front steps of our house, listening to old Motown songs on my Walkman and trying to ascertain what exactly was it to get, um, was it to twist again or to do the mashed potato and all mm. these type of, types of things. <laughs> so yeah, um, no, it wasn't really an, a very physically active kid. I would say that I was uh, actually a bit... Um, a bit on the pear-shaped sized, uh, mm -hmm. pear-shaped form, I should say. And um, yeah, it, it wasn't until I was, I think, around 12 or 13 mm -hmm. um, that I started uh, working out and training. Okay. And that was, yeah, was there a turning point or something where you suddenly got interested in or was that from like external pressure, like from a friend or family or? I mean, I think a memory that I have is when I, I happened upon the name Bruce Lee. And, um, you know, this was before, uh, before the internet and all of that, or at least when I had uh, access to internet. And I asked my dad, father, who is this Bruce Lee character? Mm -hmm. And um, he probably put down whatever he had in his hands folded his hands and looked solemnly and then said to me, I will show you in a very <laughs> ominous voice. And uh, he, he basically bought me every single Bruce Lee movie there is. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and my, my father used to be a martial arts teacher mm -hmm. before moving into the restaurant business. And so like when we were younger, he would, he would show us some moves. He would ask us to do like a thousand punches while while standing in a horse stance all of that um but uh but yeah it was after um being exposed to the magic and mystery of bruce lee that i started attending um, martial arts classes so i started training jeet kune do eskrima boxing and kickboxing and it was at that point that i found out that i really enjoyed it um mm -hmm. i I could connect with what I was doing. And, you know, it gave me a bit of confidence as well. Um, understanding how, how to move your body and understanding how to, how to learn how to move your body gives you, gives you the confidence to, to know that I can adapt to situations and I can handle myself in certain situations. Mm. And that feeling becomes addictive. And so yeah. you start doing it more and more and more. Um, and yeah, um, then I found out that there's such a thing as strength training that can be complementary to a martial arts practice. And then I started um, moving weights around. 
And then the world opened up. Yes, very much so. Um, yeah, that was a fun time. That was a really fun time. Just especially at that age, you know, when you, when your body is uh, adapt so quickly. Yeah. And when you have so much energy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I credit a lot of the things that I'm currently able to do to due to the fact that I started out pretty early uh, mm-hmm. at that age. Um, and that it was fueled by, you know, it wasn't about becoming fit by training. It was having training as a as something that could complement uh, other practices and endeavors as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Like that's um, already from the start that you're using training to complement these other practices, right? Because sometimes other people get it uh, into this type of training through different means, right? Such as like they um, really want to develop their body to um, to look good and then or they might not have another specific practice and the practice is just um, going to the gym and training right and Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think that presents its own different uh, unique challenges as maybe you then shift over to other types of training um, as well because then that provides sort of new contexts that um, you might have to step away from other long-held beliefs what especially I think if you start getting into training more from a, okay, like I, I just want to do it for an aesthetic reason or like it, um, it's, it's only in the gym where I, where I express this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm of the, I'm of the belief that it's, uh, it's totally doable and reasonable to enjoy training for the sake of training, but people do be different. And for some people, they, they, they find it easier to train when they have, uh, when they do it to facilitate or um, or help them in, in the pursuit of some other physical activity, mm. uh, something that's a bit more specific or even something that's a bit more, more vague and nebulous and ambiguous. Um, there are many reasons to work out, I guess, is, is the bottom line. Yeah, definitely. And each um, reason is unique to the inv- individual, right? So um, do you still practice any, any music? Uh, do you still... You know, keep that passion alive at at the moment. Um, I do have a couple of instruments at home that I I, I play around with now and then, um, but I find that now most of the joy that I get from music is by listening to it and um, yeah, discovering new mu- music. That's mm-hmm. that's basically it. But yeah, it's it's always going to be like I have a hard time not tapping rhythms with my feet or with my fingers i have a hard time not humming um i just spent two days with my father at our farm down south in norway and it occurred to me uh, that uh, we are all in the family constantly humming so and and that is its its own kind of joy it's it doesn't have to be performative it doesn't have to be big to be enjoyable ah so I can imagine on this farm, there's like a, a beautiful symphony of um, different UN members just just humming their own rhythms and melodies. I mean, it, it, it's it's certainly um, entertaining in its own way, though I'm not sure if beautiful is the word that I would use to describe <laughs> it. <laughs> it's there. It's there. 
so at the moment, you know, if we jump over to, you know, training in particular and um, what you actually are doing at the moment, you know, what, what would a week of training maybe like, say, for example, this week, what does that actually look like for you at the moment? Mm. Um, so my, my training changes a lot. Um, so what, what I'm about to describe is n- not necessarily what my training has looked like or what it will look like. I think it's, uh, it's good to preface that. Um, but yeah, right now I, I work out uh, six days a week. Uh, at the gym, I keep my sessions fairly minimalistic, so I do more than no more than two or three exercises per actual strength training session. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that the reason I keep my sessions minimalistic like that is because I found that that's my the best way for me to deal with the fact that I want to do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there are there are many different approaches to training, but it's when we try to make our training holistic and, and uh, to, as a way to become a generalist, that's when things can get a bit messy. We try to include everything and structure everything that we can Mm. possibly do uh, to improve our bodies or to move our bodies into sessions. And that becomes, at least for me, very restrictive and very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So I only do a couple of exercises at the gym. I try not to make a big deal out of it so that there's plenty of room in the rest of my day to explore other things. Okay. So I go to the gym, I do my exercises. I try to keep the volume minimal and I try to make sure that the, uh, uh, that the intensity is fairly high. So whatever, uh, set I'm doing, it is an effective set. It is mm-hmm. done with uh, enough intensity and effort that there's that I can foresee an adaptation occurring from that set. And then I go about living my uh, life. And the way I live my life is by doing other activities. So a bit of climbing, a bit of diving, a bit of dancing, going to the park, just playing around, trying to learn a new skill. Um, Nothing that I really try to structure all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I go with, I go for whatever I want to do and whatever is appropriate for that day. Awesome. So, and this is interesting because again, um, I'm kind of sensing there's a little bit of this delineation where there's this gym like training session that you have where um, that might have those, those couple of exercises, but then the other uh, movement that you do as well. There's a bit of a different mindset carried into that, you know, that that's not so like, Oh, you know, like I'm, I'm training. Although, you know, one could take sort of a similar mindset if they were doing climbing, right. Cause it's a, a can be a quite a rigorous physical pursuit as well as being like, Oh, that's a, a climbing training session. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. How, how do you sort of uh, what place does that have in your, your mind? That's more just, you know, I'm, just in, enjoying these other things that I like doing and that's just sporadic all throughout the week, the week. Yeah. I mean, for me, the most important aspect of it is, is I want my progression in these other pursuits to be a result of enjoyment and positive experiences Mm-hmm. And because bottom line, 
the the thing that will make you progress is that you have a positive experience with whatever you're doing. And that positive experience can come from you feeling uh, entertained or adequately challenged. Um, it could be from the fact that you're not having to sacrifice uh, a lot of time and energy. It could be that you're connecting with other people. It could be that the activity gets you to experience new things or go new places or meet new people. So whenever I'm trying to learn something new, my number one goal is to have a positive experience. Um, and for me, the way that I have positive experiences right now is, well, it's, it's the holidays here in Norway. I, I, I don't really have a, the structure I normally have, you know, work-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I travel around, you know, to meet family and friends. Mm-hmm. So then I give myself that flexibility so that I, I don't have to, yeah, I don't have to restrict myself. I can just have a holiday and do fun things. Sounds pretty good. When you go to the gym then, and do you, yeah, do you already have it predetermined then? Like <clears throat> what, two or three movements that you might be working on or yeah. How, how, how does that sort of process work like? And does that change from session to session or like, do you have a specific maybe like um, goal or, or movement that, that structures those tra- training sessions? Um, not right now. I mean, I, there will be parts of the year where I am focusing on a particular type of movement or on a particular type of body part that I want to develop somehow, um, or, or maybe even a movement quality. But right now I'm, I'm experimenting with a lower frequency. So I'm only training each body part twice per week. And I have um, taking a step away from like the higher intensities. So I don't really do, you know, uh, anything close to triples or doubles or singles. Um, Stay at around Mm -hmm. six repetitions for the heavier movements. And then for everything else, I, I do more high rep stuff. And then I'm experiencing with, uh, I'm experimenting with that because I'm noticing that I'm getting older uh, recovery takes a bit longer. I'm more prone to certain discomforts or even injuries. And so right now it feels like a good time to experiment with a bit lower frequency. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts around like longevity and longevity and training, you know, in this, um, whole movement training, training space. Um, I also ask as a bit of a, uh, selfishness as well, because I'm only a year younger than you as well so you know mm. if you're noticing these things as well i'm like oh i better listen to johnny's just the year in front of me maybe <laughs> um longevity is a tricky question um i don't think we should ask ourselves how how we can promote longevity if our idea of what we wish to last is the idea of who we are ourselves right now. Um, it's for a lot of people, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to let go of our physical identity. And so oftentimes when we talk about longevity, the idea is how do we cling on to it? Mm. Um, 
And there's no guarantee that we can. Injuries might happen. You might get sick. You might um, suddenly have other commitments that might not allow you to recover as much or to work out as much. So I think the first step to longevity, my, this is just my personal opinion, but the first step is to be able to not hold your identity like a bird. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to crush it and you don't want to let it go uh, because you're being all flimsy with it. Um, but know when it's time to let it go. Know when it's time to maybe pursue um, or experiment with another idea of who you can be. And it doesn't have to be older and more delicate or more fragile. It's just different. Yeah. So I think that's that should be priority number one. Like, <laughs> love yourself for who you are and what you're able to do right now, but don't like, don't uh, love yourself because of the idea that you're going to be able to hold on to it indefinitely. Yeah. Are there any um, certain movements or parts of your practice that you, you have let, let go of or um, yeah, that, that you don't um, engage with uh, nowadays? Mm, yeah. There, there are certain things that I can't do because of an injury I broke my foot a couple of years back and um, for some reason, maybe it was pride, maybe it was ego, maybe it was a bug in the software known as the, uh, my nervous system. I didn't really notice that I was injured. So I was uh. Uh, basically walking around with a, um, a broken foot. Wow. An avulsion, an avulsion fracture. So just a piece of bone that's floating around in my foot having a gay old time. Um, and yeah, I, I walked around with that and I basically, even though it was painful, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that a fracture had happened. It didn't feel like a fracture. I could do a bunch of different things. I was functional. It was just a bit uncomfortable. And so I did that. I, I worked out and I functioned like I normally do. Um, and now I have to spend a lot of time just taking care of that, challenging it appropriately, letting it recover enough. So yeah, there are certain things that I can't do with that foot. Um, and th these, these are like extreme ranges of motions that I can't go into uh, so, that often. So none of those um, picking up the paper with the dragon squat on, the, on that foot anymore. That actually still works. There's, it's more like, it's more silly things like toe raises and how I climb, like how I put weight on my foot as I climb mm. uh, and making sure that my, my climbing shoe is properly secured and also taking care of um, uh, paying attention to how I land when I drop from high places, that sort of stuff. Uh, but yeah, paper pickups still work. That's okay. <laughs> I'm glad, you know, I was, you know, my heart skipped a little bit. I was like, John, he's lost, he's lost that. No, it's, it's good. Everything, <laughs> everything's okay. Oh, the secret, the secret sauce and the special juice is still there. They are. <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like other than that, there, there are just certain movements that I, I can still do. Uh, I would say most of the things that I've been able to do, but I just have to be a bit careful about volume and recovery. Mm. Um, cause yeah, I really like moving and I'm, I'm, well, you know, this, 
you have Southeast Asian parents. I'm pretty good at pushing myself. So, you know, it's, it's about knowing how to, yeah, when to rein it in basically. Yeah. I've always got that internal drive as well to keep on going. Like maybe if I just had a bit more time, you know, I could just do a bit more volume or do a bit more practice all the time. But um, I guess I, because of my life, you know, I don't always have the, the time all day to train all day, but I think that's also a blessing in disguise because probably if I had that opportunity, it'd be a pretty quick road to maybe somewhere with some nasty surprises. So yeah, I've come to really appreciate to make the most of what time that I have. And then when it is time to really sleep and do all that sort of thing, you know, nourish the body and and take that rest and, and, um, if I feel good and everything's still progressing and I'm, I'm staying in a, in a good way with good energy, then, you know, you don't, don't have to be dissatisfied about that at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it can truly be like a, having all the time you want to work out can sound like a dream, but it can, it can definitely be a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. Um, one of um one of my favorite Norwegian athletes is a cross-country skier um, who affectionately is just known as the sausage, um, direct translation. And he said, the, the, um, the hardest part of my job is recovery. And it's also, it also happens to be the biggest part of my job. And so, you know, yeah, having all the time you want to work out might sound ideal, but um, I think that sort of opportunity would reveal to us the true word of passion, which means to suffer for what you love. Yeah. That's a double meaning there, right? Like um, that taking that step away could, could be the suffering that you need to embrace to um, very much so to get the most enjoyment out of the, the, the thing as a, as a broad concept. Right. So, yeah. Have you had times, you know, in the past where training has turned into like more of a, a negative versus a nourishment f- for you, you know, um, times where maybe you've had all this time as well and you, you've, you've pushed it too much? Definitely, definitely. Um, I think our, our idea of who we are and the, the pursuit of maintaining or enhancing that idea um, can get to to the best of us. And there's definitely been parts of my life where I've worked out more than what has been necessary. I've, for the most part, always enjoyed it, but it, it there, yeah, there's definitely been parts of my life where I've pushed it too far. uh, And I ended up not enjoying it because my training actually didn't make me feel good yeah like what happened what how did you sort of recognize that what did you do to to change it well i i asked myself um two questions um which was am i doing this to feel good or am i doing this to feel good about myself Mm. um and i didn't really care about the answer um I don't think answers answer as much as we like them 
uh, as we we believe them uh, to do. But it's more about just becoming aware, being aware of our experience and being aware of our intention. Mm. Um, and, you know, feeling good about yourself, that's, a, that's basically about are you enjoying what you're doing? Do you, do you like doing it? Are you having fun in the moment? Do you feel good? Like, does your body feel good? Mm. Do you feel good about, you know, the people you're spending time with? Or perhaps you feel good about spending time away from people, which is also an important aspect of training for a lot of people. Um, and then feeling good about yourself could then be, am I feeling good about myself because I feel like the idea of that other people have of me is being um, improved somehow? Or am I feeling good about myself because I am... I am improving the image of myself as a disciplined person or a hardworking person? Or am I feeling good about myself because I believe that this practice, the current process that I'm in, although it might be painful right now, will serve me in the future? And at a glance, it might sound like feeling good about yourself is a bad thing that we should only feel good, but I think that there needs to be a balance. Ego is a thing. You can't have ego death. That means that you would be dead. Mm. Um, but it it just helped becoming aware of and understanding that, okay, I like what I'm doing. I like I like the the workouts that I'm putting myself through, but I don't really like how they're making me feel after I've done them. So I probably need to change them some things mm. yeah it's um it can be a tricky one i think because i think the physical and physical training is so mixed with emotion right because as you go through these tasks and exercises that you do all amount of different things come up depending on the challenge right and you know at the sort of most blunt way sometimes when you just lift a heavy weight right you you can um just feel that sensation of, you know, that this is, this is a little bit painful at some point, you know, is it, is it making me feel good? But like timing, I think then becomes important because maybe during that part of the lift, right? Like right in the middle, when you're really struggling, it's probably doesn't, doesn't feel like the best, but then afterwards, you know, you, you could feel great, but then there are the mm -hmm. other points and it's funny, it can vary from certain um, exercise the exercise where you go, Oh, actually like, yeah, I think there was something there that kind of aggravated something, or maybe it's a whole volume thing as well. You walk away from the session and you're like, I'm actually feeling pretty cooked now and I don't really want to do anything else. And, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I've definitely gone through different periods as well, where I ask myself and go, okay, like, yeah, where am I sitting at with my training right now? And is this the thing that is really um, nourishing my life and serving me the best? Or do I need to make some changes here as, as well? And um, if, if, if I do that, maybe if it's to do more training or, you know, am I willing to make the necessary sacrifices, as you mentioned, you know, like you, you can't see as many people then if you're just sometimes training by, by yourself uh, versus if you might step it back. So there's always, I always go back to this thing that, yeah, there's always a cost to pay and that's worth recognizing. 
Yeah, very, very true. I think, who was it? Bernard Shaw, I think, was the one who said that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that is it has taken place. Hmm. And we are constantly communicating with ourselves. Um, we're getting signals from our bodies. We're getting signals from um, our training. We're getting messages from our own brains and i think it's very helpful to just sit down and allow that conversation to take to fully take place and to really assess whether or not you are your training is serving you or if you are serving your training and at times yes you need to sacrifice a bit of you time and uh comfort for the mm -hmm. sake of progression that is certainly an element to training, but if it gets to the point where you are not enjoying it and you don't necessarily enjoy the results from it, even though they might be seen as positive results, then I think that, yeah, it would be helpful to allow that, that conversation to take uh, even more space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's always a that conversation with yourself is always an ongoing one as well, you know, and, and it can get um, overwhelming sometimes at, at times if you, uh, if it goes around too much in, I always call it like sort of like thought spirals um, mm -hmm. and you, you need strategies sometimes to, uh, to navigate and cope, and cope with that and, and snap you out of, out of those as well, especially when they become non-constructive. So. Um, Very much so. Yeah, so yeah, we really appreciate your thoughts there. Um, but one thing I wanted to jump across to now was, um, you know, looking through most of the stuff you share as well. Like a lot of you, you seem to be able to, to a wide, varied array of different skills and um, uh, and and movements, uh, which um, yeah, look at all sorts of different difficulty levels, but I wanted to ask you, like, what has been the hardest thing maybe, uh, for you to, to learn? Hmm. I, th I hate to bring it back to our, our uh, previous subject, but I think it, it is exactly that, hmm. learning how to let go. Um, and, and it's not about letting go of skills. It's, and it's not about letting go of aesthetics. It's not about letting go of um a workout plan that you deem to be uh worthy enough of your uh, sacrifice but it's about just letting go of, of letting go of the fear that you need to be even either the version of yourself that you are right now or an improved version of mm -hmm. yourself um for me to for me, yeah, for me, the most difficult thing has been exactly that. Just going like, you know what? I don't, I don't have to uphold this image to myself or to anyone else. Um, I am going to work out in a way that is entertaining, that allows me to not become the best at what I do or to be at least one of the 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 betters of what I do, okay. uh, but to just have fun um, and and to 
to play around and to 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 allow myself to like open more windows of opportunity and peek my head inside instead of like defenestrating myself and throwing myself out of it um that has been the most difficult part for me mm. yeah i think it yeah this concept about like this self-perception around identity and, and and who you are and that 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 is always in flux and you know that's something to appreciate rather than to um forecast in future what it could be or even comparing yourself uh, backwards which um yeah maybe sometimes now with the advent of all this high definition video is very easy to compare all the time right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's um yeah. you know that that's something that we have to recognize that you know, we are all ever changing as well. And we're only going in one direction, which is getting older as well. And I think that there's something very important to be said that that's to be respected as well, that the body does change over time in ways that you cannot control as well. Mm. And so you just need to work with it and um, enjoy yourself throughout the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's no shame in that. Actually, it's very difficult to allow yourself to have fun mm. uh, with your training and to enjoy it. Um, but there's there's another reason why I I I want to not have to associate myself only with one type of performance or a certain level of performance. It's because I I want to do new things, and I I want to do that for three different reasons. Number one. It's fun. Number two, it's healthy. Learning how to do new things and learning how to adapt to new environments and learning how to engage with other people. Um, It not only keeps you busy, but it also keeps you on your toes. But the third reason is because I want to live a long life. And that's not about the how many years that I live, but it's about how those years are experienced. You know, as we, as we get older, we can only process so many units of time at a time. So as we get lo- older, all the units of time that are in our heads have to become smaller in order for us to be able to um, perceive all the time that has passed. And so after we've turned about 30, even though we, we might have 40 even 50 years left, those years will seem to go faster. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the old saying, as you get older, time, time passes by faster. And the way we can deal with that, to have a long life in terms of how it's experienced and to have a healthy life in terms of how we expose ourselves to new things and to have a fun life in regards to how not to deny ourselves certain experiences, it's by doing new things. And so uh, fun isn't only entertainment. It's also just extending experience Mm -hmm. to make sure that the life that has passed and the years that have passed don't seem condensed for the sake of us sticking to one thing to become the best at that thing. That doesn't mean that that's a wrong thing to do. If that's what you love and you find micro experiences that are new and interesting, you find you're able to perceive all the variety and different shades uh, that exist within an experience, then you can certainly stick to one thing. But for me, 
I want to do a bunch of new things. That's that's how I seem to, uh, what seems to make me happy. Do you, do you feel the same way? Like, do you, mm-hmm. do you feel like time passes by slower or um, does it change your perception of time? If you, if you have new experiences, if you travel a lot or if you try out new skills. Yeah, it definitely does. And I've, uh, I've noted this down before, um, especially in periods where I've gone like to be consistently journaling a lot where, um, I think it, it depends in the area that you're dealing with as well. Like how, how you mentioned, I think you can get really deep into certain experiences. Um, and then from the th- a third party's eye, you know, it looks like you're kind of doing the same thing all the time. But if you pay attention, then you can get what you describe like as these micro experiences or just like the just noticing new different things which can then for me slow down the perception of time to be like no I'm really in this moment now moment to moment and things aren't passing by but sometimes you know you do need like this gross new stimulus as well like going traveling or going to a whole new place or meeting someone completely new which then just feeds at least my mind in a completely different way and but then it can go in two ways. I found where either then time can zoom by because, and you've all heard it, like I had so much fun, it just passed by so so quickly. Or it can yeah. be like you know I'm really enjoying this like moment to moment, and it's more about yeah like this thing of when it's hard to describe because even in those moments where I'm having a lot of fun and time's all passing by, it's not that I'm not paying attention, but yeah like i do think it can it can happen either way so um that that's been at least at least my observation yeah who would have thought time is complex <laughs> <laughs> well at least our, our brains and, and our brains perception of time right so um yeah. something to yeah but but one reminder that i always um try to give to myself is to keep on continuously paying attention mm-hmm. and ha- and catching myself where I'm not paying conscious attention because that definitely then feels like sometimes like I miss moments of time as well. And you'd be like, Oh, like what, what happened there? And it's a bit of like a black spot almost sometimes. And you're like, do I want black spots in my memory in my <laughs> life? Not, not really. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I often I often think of that, you know, when I listen to my my elders talk about their life experiences, I often go, so what are the experiences that you've forgotten? Cuz there must have been some. There must be some blind spots there. Hmm. Well, I think one of the key skills which I want to keep on developing, which I think like um especially elders uh the more entertaining elders have cultivated a lot is that that art of storytelling, because that is a way of uh, reliving certain experiences within the mind over and over and over again. Right. So you can literally like replay like the best moments of your life through like a story that you can just tell and, and share that with others. And I think that's always such a beautiful way of, of, of sharing, right. Uh, much more beautiful than, 
just like an Instagram post or, or whatever, right? That's the old school. There, there's something to that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the most sacred traditions that we have. And one of those most beautiful ones is storytelling. And to be honest, I don't care if it's a hundred percent uh, accurate or not. Like, no. <laughs> take, take me on that journey. I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, do so, you do you yeah. have like fr- from your training? Um, speaking of storytelling, mm-hmm. what if you were going to tell a story from your training? What memory? pops up in your mind like that okay that's the story that i i feel i can confidently retell with a certain degree of accuracy and that's also exciting for me to like tell myself about um well before we started this chat i sort of recounted the experience of when yeah uh i was in my university heyday and i was lifting heavy weights um you know trying to push the deadlift as as heavy as possible and getting to the Olympic lifts. And it gave me this certain sense of self where I was like, I'm now really big and strong. Cause I think uh, during that early twenties, you know, you, you pack on suddenly like five, 10 kilos of, um, of weight as well. And there's a certain whole evolution within your psyche, right. That you're like, Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm feeling different. I'm looking different. You know, everything, everything seems to be aligning here. Right. So um then from that stage, I, I thought I could take on sort of any physical pursuit. And at that time, I, I wanted to go into um, a group sport because I was a swimmer growing up and I wanted the experience of playing with the team, with, with other people. And so decided like uh, I wanted to give give hockey a go. And I remember like coming onto this field with this big sense of like, oh, you know, like this is going to be easy like I'm a big and strong and I feel I feel um like I could just take on anything and I remember just in that first training how much like where we were given this task where we're just like oh you know you got the stick you got the ball now you just gotta like dribble the ball run up and down the field like for for two laps and like first half of the lap I just completely just took off right like I just had like all the energy then after the first lap the amount of just like new sensations in my legs and at that time you know I was squatting like almost close to double body weight that sort of thing and I was like you know nothing can phase me but then just bending over in this like kind of hip hinged position over this ball like my back was searing up like my legs were like all filling with all this lactic acid as well I just saw everyone run past me and I was and I remember like almost like crying as I like got to the the end of the the field after doing two laps just just like shaking my head just looking around just going like what what is what has happened my whole <laughs> my sense whole sense of identity is just being just being shattered oh the house of cards comes tumbling down <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah we talk about identity as much and like yeah this is when i think sometimes yeah it can really turn on you when you just have this um limited perspective or some sort of way where uh, you you think you're like the king or the ultimate right but it can just take one little task to just show you um show you show you different and if, if you're not sort of like um 
ready for that because I was, you know, I was a lot younger back then as well, can sort of just leave you scratching your head afterwards, just going like, what's wrong with my body? Like, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with me? You know, that's the, mm-hmm. kind of what the questions I, I was asking myself. So yeah, that's the um, story that probably comes to mind at first, but how about, how about for you yourself, John? Like if um, someone was to ask you a story around training that you, that might um, be entertaining and interesting for them to listen about in your history. Oh, there are, um, there are many, there are many. Um, I, I think, well, right now I'm thinking of which one to tell because I have a hard time deciding on just one. Um, but I, I, I think I'll try to tell a similar story. I, um, this was during the part of my life where I spent the most time in the gym and uh, feeling very strong indeed due to my accomplishments inside the confines of a air-conditioned uh, gym with all the equipments that uh, one can dream of. And then me and my older brother, we went to the Caribbean island of Dominica and we were going to go on a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met our guide, whose name, I kid you not, was Rasta Dave. And, and Rasta Dave, uh, he, uh, he met us at this, uh, yeah, at this road leading into the forest. And he took one look at us and he said, normally this hike takes about seven hours. We're going to do it in half that time. Um. And so we started walking and uh, our destination was the boiling lake of Dominica, which at its coldest is 110 degrees Celsius. So above the boiling point, hence its name. And to get to the boiling lake, we had to walk through treacherous jungle over a couple of very muddy uh, hillsides through what and this is its actual very cool name through the valley of desolation wow um yeah to get to our goal and i remember uh one point of the journey uh where we were walking across this particularly treacherous ridge um with like jungle on both sides rasta dave said to us if you're going to fall, fall to the left. That way you'll die. The other side, you'll get maimed and we'll uh, <laughs> live the rest of your life with tremendous pain. Um, but yeah, I was, I was walking through this jungle and it was beautiful. Uh, just like the most amazing views and interesting animals. And uh, it, it was a really, really rough trek. And I thought to myself, I am going to remember this. It is impossible for me to forget this moment. And then I thought back on all my training sessions. And then I thought to myself, how many of my training sessions will I be able to remember? Mm. And that's, that's basically how I became 
um, an almost man bun uh, wearing movement culturist. <laughs> was it, it was that, that was the turning point. Mm-hmm. That was when I decided like, I, I want my moments to matter. I want my sessions to matter. Mm-hmm. And not just for the sake of my ego, how I'm perceived, how I perceive myself, but also how I perceive my life. Mm-hmm. I want to be intentional about the memories that I'm making. And I'm going to make sure that I spend a lot of time working out, taking care of myself to live longer, but to also make the the moments that make up that duration of life uh, be of importance and be rememberable uh, or memorable as it's known in English and to be fun. Mm. And that was kind of the advent (laughs) For me, like that, that was when I became interested in in movement, not just as a training method, because movement as a training method has hasn't very, it has never really interested in me that much. Um, it seems too filled with philosophy and too filled with promises to be of any value um, to me, but as a way of treating myself and treating my life, yes, like having that more generalist approach where I can tell myself it's okay to suck. It's mm-hmm. okay to do things and to just experience things and to feel familiar with something without being the best at it. Um, that That's a totally v- viable way of taking care of yourself. That seems like a beautiful trip and a beautiful moment to remember. Definitely following Rasta Dave into the depths of the jungle to the, to the boiling lake. That, that is, yeah, not many experiences that I think can, can top that, but um, I, I love that that really provoked more consideration from yourself ongoing then to, on how do you structure your, your life and your, your, your training around that as well, because yeah, I think there's definitely a, a portion of training right which can suck you down sometimes especially if you just get into this sort of mechanistic way of viewing it where you're just like going and going and going and going and there's um and you're not going into it maybe in the right mind frame either so that then it is hard to remember like what happened with all those sessions but you just keep on driving towards some sort of training goal or some sort of area right that is supposed to be achieved with all these um with all this training Mm. yeah and i'm it's not like i'm i'm against discipline or focus Mm. uh, at all um but what you feel about what you're doing and your intention uh going into something um isn't equal to what you're going to get out of it you know like you you can you can achieve very impressive skills and you can become very muscular and very lean indeed while treating it as a positive experience or a series of positive experiences for you that is totally possible um i think we 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 learn by example and and in our current culture, there are so many people who influence us, who explain to us, and I think 
for the most part, are explaining to themselves that all of their results and all of their achievements are the result of hard and smart work only. But, you know, that's an egocentric bias. Of course, we're going to explain to ourselves that anything that we have or anything that we're able to do is the result of hard and smart work. But oftentimes, it's the result of just a series of coincidences. Um, Maybe, you know, your uh, socioeconomic status in the world, maybe due to a random meeting of uh, with a person who inspired you to do something, maybe just a random land hockey game. It It's very easy to tell oneself that everything that is impressive has to be the result of hard and smart work. But I don't think that's the case. Mm. I don't think that's the case at all. And furthermore, saying that to somebody else is uh, not very fair because then you're saying the reason you don't have my results is because you're not able to work hard and smart. Um, I think it's way more important to to help people find their own way of working. Um, And that doesn't have to be associated with a degree of intellect or a degree of um, ability to endure pain. It just has to be their way. And the results matter and the results will come, but they don't only have to come because you're working out terribly smart or in a terribly hard or disciplined fashion. Hmm. So just opening up the doors of opportunity and possibility and going, okay, you want to learn how to do, let's say a middle split or a one-arm chin-up. Is the only way of getting to that through the very narrow door of somebody else's perception of what hard and smart work is? Mm. Probably not. I would say definitely not, to be honest. Yeah. I think this is a good time to jump over to this area that, yeah, wants to to delve in to, which is um, developing like a broader, we can call it like a a movement practice. Like a lot of people are always asking, you know, like um, if I was to start into trying to develop, I guess, a a more, a broader range of training outside of just, just more, a a more traditional, say, strength basis, like how would I program this? How would I start? and key to just start opening up the conversation uh, for us to start tease out the approach that maybe you might um, take to uh, to help such a person. I know I was watching a video the other day. I think this was for your work through the Movement Guild as well. That mm. um, you know you have a, some some thoughts and approaches there. So yeah, especially when you hear the term movement, it could be you know anything so mm-hmm. how, that's how, not very helpful <laughs> yeah how, how do you how, how do you advise someone to you know t- tackle tackle that um i would say you know the first uh in general i encourage people to just get a bit stronger um just having a bit more muscle mass and being able to uh recruit more Uh, motor units and being able to move something heavy or do something difficult uh, in terms of strength has a lot of carryover effects. So like that's 
for me, that's step number one, get somebody a bit stronger. Um, other than that, we, we often use a movement-centered program in order to simulate other activities. Um, my philosophy um, is to make sure that we find a way to either get someone in the environment that has the best chances of shaping them in a favorable way, or we try to simulate the environment. So like for me, I, I try as much as I can because I have the opportunity uh, to go to the environment that I believe is going to shape me. Like if I wanna learn how to um, relax and breathe properly, I'm gonna go free diving. It's, it's just a very simple choice to me. Uh, but I can't, uh, especially because I'm in Norway, free dive or, or be in the water at all times uh, unless I want to be uh, the worst example of what happens when you work hard, which is to freeze myself to death. <laughs> um, so then we can start simulating it by doing certain drills. But at the center of it all is, is the question, what do you want to do? Because you, 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 we can try to do everything, but I'm not particularly interested in that. I want to figure out what you as a person want to do. And if you don't know what to do, that's when we can use, or at least begin to use a movement-centered program to simulate certain experiences that might enable someone to figure out what they'd like to experiment with further. Um, a movement program or a movement center program for me has never been the end point. It is the window of opportunity that allows people to have more experiences so they can figure out what they want for however long they want to focus on something. So let's say we want someone to, um, we, we, uh, we have a person who's not really sure what they want to do. Maybe they want to move with a bit more um, in an aesthetically more pleasing manner or a more creative manner, I often have them do spinal waves, not because spinal waves is the end all be all to aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing movement, but because it provides a window of opportunity for people to discover more nuances in terms of just finer articulations of the spine and also a more a delicate relationship or a more mindful relationship to the passing of time as you're moving. And if they enjoy that, if there are certain aspects of that they enjoy, then we can move on by experiencing or experimenting with more specific activities. Mm. Then, okay, I, re I really like it when my spine does this thing where it looks like I'm creating a sort of illusion of a wave. Okay, let's try popping. Yeah, nice. Or yeah, let's nice. try another type of dance. If you can't do that, then I'm going to do my best to continue to simulate that experience. And maybe that itself can be not a simulation, but an actual real experience. But I will, I will as much as I can, re recommend that they go to a source that has a bigger culture behind it and more of a history behind it that they themselves can immerse themselves in because uh, community and environment will teach you way more 
than a single program ever will. Brilliant answer. I really like that, especially this delineation between, yeah, you might not always, for whatever reason, have access to a certain environment or a certain teacher or a certain field that you might have direct interest in. But um, I think one of the benefits of having this broader perspective of movement is I think it enables uh, you to be more open to trying these certain types of drills that I think both traditionally, right? Like if you're um, coming just from a strength background, you never see spinal waves or anything like that, but then suddenly, you know, you you've opened the door to it. Maybe that feels really good. And then that can keep on continuing in its own path for it and be a study in its own self or open you up to start taking a certain type of dance class as well. And I do align with how you explain it where like, at least for me, through, uh, with um, using or utilizing movement in my life, what I really enjoy is that it really helps me connect with other people out there and the environment around me. So because of the way that I take a sort of broader approach, I get to meet and connect with all these like people, you know, through this, through this podcast, but then in physical pursuits as well, when I um, say like right now I'm training capoeira, that wouldn't have come about unless, you know, I was trying, you know, capoeira simulated movements and really enjoying that, you know, through, mm-hmm. um, through, through the practice. But then I was like, ah, oh, I think I want something more and you are right. Then you step into that culture. And um, once you realize that that door has been o- opened, you're like, Oh, this is like a really deep hole. There's so, there's so much here. Like <laughs> this yeah. is really nice. Yeah, no, I I love that. I love that, you know, type of almost like primary school approach where it's not about we're going to make you competent in all these different topics of uh, of uh, social sciences and math and uh, physical education and and, uh, different languages, but it's we're going to allow you to experience all these different wonderful and weird fields so that you yourself can decide which direction you want to, to go in with a bit more focus and uh, perhaps with a clearer intention. Um, and I, I love the fact that this allows coaches to not, not be perfectly balanced individuals. And that, that's, that's the tricky thing about the movement culture is the promise of having so much knowledge in all of these different fields that we can provide the perfectly balanced solution for any individual, which is just wrong. It's, it's not possible. Um, you are, and I am, and we are just tiny, tiny specks and a huge ocean of opportunities and specialties and activities and interests and hobbies and every sort of pursuit you can imagine. It is impossible for us to be balanced, but we can balance each other out. And the way I look at myself as a coach is that I can balance out the the higher thresholds that exists in certain fields and certain activities, like the threshold of going to a samba class or the threshold of going to um, a weightlifting club or a grappling 
a gym or something like that by providing them with samples and uh, a guided experience in what is happening in these different communities. And then you, once you feel confident, competent, and interested enough, then you can go to the people who will make you feel even more confident, competent, and more interested. Uh, I think that's, I hope is the future of the movement culture is to understand our place in the world and have less of a me focus and more of a we focus. Cause that way we get to compete less with other training methods. We get to compete less with one another and we get to be a bit more collaborative and also more creative in how we work, not to provide perfectly balanced solutions, but instead provide guided experiences that that can allow our clients or our friends or our members or what have you explore the venues that they actually want to explore and it doesn't have to be with us mm, yeah and it's a, a bit of separating this idea that there's this pursuit of like this um purity of movement or or something like that and there's uh and you just learn whatever is is given to you versus like you no know, you have you have choice over what you really want to do and we as as teachers are like providers to help open these doors and these strategies of how possibly to get there mm-hmm. yeah yeah it becomes a lot more fun that way i think for the people working in the field and those who are interested in working with them just you know lowering our shoulders unclenching our jaws and uh and looking at this as just a part of the whole but certainly not the whole yeah certainly like what i've noticed like uh when i um teach others is i really enjoy that through this um practice it sort of has broadened my bag of of tools that i can share with others um, that can help them develop more awareness and understanding of how they could develop themselves to to do more more broader things and so it doesn't have to be just in the field of certain strengths but like say if it was a spinal wave like a certain sense sensitivity and how that could relate to somewhere else uh, yeah i do i do really treasure that i think um something that I've been sort of contemplating for a while is um, other than developing or helping people develop an understanding or an approach of how to actually really physically develop themselves to take on any sort of area that they want. Maybe another component that is quite important as well is just getting this understanding of, you know, when, when you do get injured or when something does go sort of not quite right, like how you deal with that. And I think if you, if someone sort of had a strategy of when they get injured, they, and, and, and they, they can manage their way out from that. And then also a strategy for how to develop themselves to prepare them for, whatever desire that they want, then, you know, everything is open, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's about having, uh, not keeping all of your eggs, however, however many they might be in just one basket. Um, Yeah. It helps a lot. 
just having backup plans and more options and also having a wider understanding of what you can do, despite the fact that there's currently something that you cannot do um, in the presence of, let's say, injury or fatigue or something like that. That's also where movement or a movement center practice can truly shine um, by showing people that there's, there's more stuff to do. You can still work out hard. Uh, you can still have fun and you can still learn despite not moving heavy ass weights all the time. Mm. And so, yeah, someone where, you know, they've come to you and you're helping them. I know I've um, seen you speak a bit more about trying to develop this real sense of autonomy within the, mm-hmm. the, the student, you know, how, how, how does that sort of actually look like with, um, uh, how, how do you, how do you cultivate that, um, you know, through, uh, through this experience that you give them because, you know, at the end of the, sometimes you give them this piece of paper with this, this program as well, which would have this written down inst- instructions, you know, how, how, how do you approach trying to cultivate, um, autonomy within someone seeking guidance from you? Um, Well, the first thing is to clarify expectations, you know, so people understand what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do. And if someone someone gets in touch with me and they they modify their actual wants because of their expectation of how I will teach, you know, then we're not going to get anywhere. So uh, the first the first step is to ask questions knowing very well that you have no idea what the answers will be. So not anticipating answers or not projecting your own answers onto the student. So just asking questions. That's, I mean, that is coaching. That is the art and the science of coaching is saying less and asking more. Um, And to really make the student feel safe enough to know that they can answer in any what they really mean or what they really want to say. Uh, The second step is to begin writing the program and in the program, allow them to be a part of the creative process. Um, I think this is speaking of what I hope for uh, when it comes to the movement culture. I hope that this is something that more and more coaches will begin to do is to collaborate with their students as adults and not to be not to act as if they're parents to children Hmm. talk to them have an adult conversation um, and let them be a part of the creative the creative portion of program designing so that they understand that there's no such thing as a magic bullet when it comes to programs so a lot of my students, we sit down uh, on our, in front of our respective screens and we pull up a spreadsheet and I go, here's the basic outline of the program based on your current experience level, based on how much time you have available right now, based on other you know um, stuff that's going on in your life. Um, we could call them stressors. This is... Mm-hmm approximately what the program will look like. Now let's, let's uh, color it in and you decide which colors you want to use. Mm. So 
here we're going to have a movement that belongs to this category or an exercise that belongs to this category. Based on what you want, it seems like you want either this exercise or this exercise or this exercise. Which of these do you want? I can't keep it completely open because if I keep it completely open, then I'm basically making the assumption that they know all the exercises that I have in my my toolbox, you know? Mm -hmm. So keeping things specified or specific, but still having the option to choose between different specifics. That way, number one, like I mentioned, they understand that there's no such thing as a magical program. And number two, they begin to take pride in not their ability to do what I say, but to have a say in what to do. Mm. And that is, I believe, extremely important to reduce the distance in terms of status and decision making. And, uh, you know, like we, 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 we tend to fall into three roles. All of us were either the victim of something going on or the persecutor blaming somebody for, for doing something wrong or we're the rescuer. And a lot of the times us coaches go into the rescue role. Mm. I will save you with this program making the program so that they have a say in what what happens in it allows us to take a good step back from those roles and where we can collaborate um and that i found has a tremendous impact on their sense of self and the importance of their self in the decision making other than that also create programs where they get to decide what to do on a given day so let's say you know, day three, exercise C2, the last exercise of the day, um, you're going to choose a, a bicep isolation exercise and you get to decide which, uh, whichever of the exercises that, are, that you know of on that day. But here are some rules. Maybe the rule is you're going to do at least 15 repetitions, but you're going to say two repetitions away from failure, something like that. That way they get to try out theories, which is really important. Um, we need to, we need training to be a, to be a tool or, or, um, or a place where we get to try out theories. Cause there are many theories that are good, that are wrong. And there are many theories that might seem bad, but that are right. And they deserve the opportunity to try that out for themselves instead of expecting or being imposed upon constant answers because if we're if you're given answers all of the time or solutions that implies that you have a problem mm -hmm. and many times the more answers we provide the more problems we're actually giving people specific answer solutions imply you have specific problems and that's why being a rescuer is not always a good thing because you might actually be saying to the person, this is super complicated and you're in dire need of help, or this is very dangerous, or this is very complex, and you are not capable of dealing with this yourself. That's no way of promoting autonomy or auto-regulation. Very interesting. Yeah. And especially those last two points with, um, yeah, how you saying like that, just raising a certain type of point you could be preceding or even 
having some sort of nocebic effect to uh, to to create this sort of problem where you don't know how they're perceiving mm-hmm. it or how, or how they may may go and so a lot of it and I think this also goes to that whole thing sometimes sort of like over instruction over queuing or all that sort of thing rather than just letting it play, play out and 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 seeing what happens right um, and part of uh, I think it's always part of the struggle as well when you're guiding someone of um, actually guiding rather than controlling right because it can it can feel good to just like get exactly what you want out out from somebody right but then it becomes more about yourself versus helping the other person um but on, on the point number two like yeah i've never really heard that before on this like col- collaborative program design and i think that's a really interesting approach and you know is that that's something that you've been using for a while and it's like yeah uh, what have you noticed with um your, the people that you're working with um when you uh, when you take this approach i've found that uh people allow themselves to be more creative um training in general, is often presented in this pseudo-scientific way, which means incredibly specific answers and answers that you are dependent on. And the answer could just be Bulgarian split squat, front foot elevated, four sets of seven seven repetitions. Um, The idea that whatever program that you're being given by your coach is hyper-specific to you and could not work for anyone else and that any variation of this program would be lesser than the current version of the program. That is flat out wrong. If a coach approaches you and says that, uh, you should grab a kettlebell and smack them in the face because they're lying. It is not true. Mm. Um, That is my personal guarantee uh, from me to you, dear listeners. and if you feel um, uncomfortable slapping in the face with a kettlebell, um, call me and I'll call my people because I'm not comfortable doing it <laughs> myself. Uh, I'll, in fact, I'll call Fayon. It's your responsibility now. Um, but yeah, it's what I've found is that people, people be, uh, get more of the do-it-yourself mindset. Uh, they start being more creative they start experimenting a bit more and they stop letting what should work get in the way of what can work. There are too many shoulds out there and most of them are not accurate. They, they also find more joy in their training because they're being creative, they're having more fun with it. And because they're more creative and they see the program or the training less as an answer and more as a question, they're not afraid of letting go in case it doesn't uh, work. And it, it allows the program to also become more malleable. Um, the program should be a test of itself, not of the person doing it. And I think there are many people who stick to a program knowing deep down very well that it doesn't work 
because of their idea that, um, or the idea that them being able to do the program proves their worth somehow. Um, the program is worthless. Like the person doing the program is a worth mm. and their experiences are central. So once they have a finger on the button, they get to decide certain exercises. They also um, become a le- bit less afraid of saying, you know what, I don't think this is working. And they're able to do that without creating an antagonistic relationship to what they've done. And this is something that we can see uh, very often in the movement culture is people going, so I tried this one exercise or I tried this one training method. At that time, I did not know what I know now, which is that that exercise that training method was very, very bad. Very, very bad indeed. In case... In fact, it might be the worst thing ever made by a human being. I have developed an antagonistic relationship to this because somebody provided me this answer and it turned out to be false. Once you do that, you shut yourself off and close the door to a training method or an exercise that might actually be valuable. That is not, in fact, 100% bad. It might just have been bad in that particular situation. It, it's the equivalent of you uh, stepping on a piece of Lego and then throwing it out of your toy box. You could have used it for something. Once they become a part of the decision-making, they understand that it's not, not the, the element or the Lego brick that was at fault. It was just the wrong decision for the wrong time. And so their toolbox, toolbox hasn't become smaller, but they've expanded their mindset. And that's how we can we can actually create practices that are more uh, more open um, that can contain all of these wonderful weird exercises and drills and uh, and methods. But it becomes bigger because our minds are becoming bigger through the process of playing with them and being the being a part of the decision making process as to whether or not it should be used. Yeah, I can see it really developing a sense of ownership over their choices, right? That oh, I, I, I chose this and so that's why I'm going to do it and, and see what happens when I actually commit to this and, and, and try it, right? And um, yeah, I, I really like play, like thinking about this and um, thinking about, because uh, I have... Um, yeah, I've never done it myself before with with somebody, but um, I can see maybe on the on the flip side of this, what it it does demand and question of the people who are the teachers and the guiders, right? Is that it is a lot of extra effort, right? Because it's much easier just to go, okay, like I'm just going to decide this, 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 just send it off, and then it's done. Versus, oh no, now we're going to have to sit down, have that conversation explain through the, all these choices, explain to them with whatever questions they may have through those question, uh, those choices, because now instead of explaining like one exercise, you got to explain three or four, um, four, and then <laughs> yeah. go through, through that, that whole process. And I think that's the, um, that's probably where, yeah, with this, uh, this method, you do have to step up and then offer that additional level of support for the person, mm. um, which um, I can see 
maybe sometimes isn't a, a, as attractive as the like, uh, I can just send off this thing and that they go and do, do this thing and, and, and we're done. Mm, yeah. It does take a bit of extra work, but once you get used to it, um, I'm not to worry about how much I work, but I care about how the way I work makes me feel. Um, and hopefully it doesn't feel too much like a chore and yeah, like having, making sure clients get clients input is being heard and, and has value and an impact on the program. It's just so much fun because you, you become aware of how limited your, your own cognitive capacity is as, as a coach. And you start to understand that clients have a lot of really, really good answers that you've never thought of. Um, and yeah, it, it takes work, but it's fun. Um, and you quickly notice that a lot of clients are very different from one another. There have been times where I've said, okay, we're going to move on to phase two. And the client goes, I've already got it planned. <laughs> And then, of course, like I have to do the responsible thing. I have to look through the program. I have to look uh, look at whether or not there's something that could have been can be done in so that we uh, get to work with higher quality or more specific to their goals and all of that. Um, it has to there has to be a teaching moment inside there as well. If there's a teaching moment to be made, uh, if it's necessary. But yeah, in general, it's just that's how I learn and grow as a coach it's from my clients first and foremost and is, it just is, feels fun is there a point then you know where say that person and they're like oh, i've already programmed this that you know the it really is true autonomy and you're like you know I, I just need to step away now and let them you know do do they need me anymore do you do you sort of see that as like you know your, your role then being um, that you're trying to achieve with everybody coming to you and you know at that point um, yeah I guess the other the other side of autonomy when you are a teacher right is that your student then actually finishes up with you and the work the yeah. work the work is done right so yeah is is that what, what is happening and or is that what um, you're trying to strive to achieve with everyone um, coming to guidance with you yes Yes. Financially, not the best choice, but professionally, I feel like it is the most honest choice is to make sure that my value as a teacher is not to be uh, someone other people are dependent on. Mm. So, uh, but here, the thing is, um, we have to think about what's happening long term. And Although it might feel very good to have a client work with you for years and years and years, um, there are clients who work with you for one month and either you say to them, I think you've got a handle on what's going on right now, or maybe there's another teacher that would be more relevant to your current practice and your current goals, or maybe they say, I think I'd like to try out programming on my own. But after a year or so, or two years, or three years, or five years, they come back. 
um, having somebody's trust is better than having somebody's dependency on you. Um, and I'm not worried about retaining as many clients for as long as possible because I plan on doing this in, in, in a, for a long time. And I, I know that I treat my clients with, uh, with the respect that I myself would like to be treated with. And I know that a lot of them are going to come back. I'll see them again in some other way. I think I, I really like the way you, you, you put that there where, you know, about that thing of retaining the trust rather than the dependency. I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, and I guess following up from this is like, say someone does have like autonomy and is programming for themselves. Uh, and I think I've seen you post about this as well, saying that the best um, part of your philosophy is that you believe that the best coach is you and in and, and yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And to contrast this, uh, I think there's this coach, from, uh, this quote from Dan John, who says the coach who trains himself has an idiot for a client, uh, mm -hmm. where you're referring, yeah, that um, it can be very challenging and troublesome to program for yourself because sometimes you might try and avoid all the things that maybe might give you benefit as well. So yeah, how do you sort of navigate that and um, it may be even for yourself as well because uh, I think that yeah there's there's some truth there's, some, there's definitely challenges and drawbacks to just being completely autonomous versus having a guide all the um, to, to, to help you oh for sure um, I in no way want a person to be 100% independent because that means that they're no longer open to outside feedback or input rather, which is necessary where we all have our biases. We all have our habits or little uh, heuristics that we fall victim to. And so to have somebody from the outside go, here's, here's a different idea or you know what, you've been trying the same thing now for five years and nothing has come out of it. How about we try something different? Um, that is incredibly valuable or it's, it's actually necessary lest you become um, a megalomaniac. So yeah, you definitely want outside feedback, but the important thing is that somebody else's input shouldn't dictate everything that you do. You still need to be aware of your own experience because although you're limited by your own ideas and you're limited by the knowledge that you have, you are still the only person who can experience what you're going through. Nobody else can do that for you. And that's, that becomes the issue when, when a coach starts to invalidate uh, what you're feeling or doesn't pay attention to your experience or says, or yeah, or just says, suck up buttercup, walk it off, um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and all of that. Uh, when it just becomes, this is the smart thing to do. And unfortunately it's very hard. You know, you, you need to pay attention to your own experience because you are the only one who can do that. And the wonderful thing about experience is that it's 
it's incredibly powerful, but it's also very easily manipulated and polluted because you can go, this really doesn't feel good. But then your coach, uh, AKA the one, AKA the chosen one, <laughs> AKA the one with all true answers goes, no, it's supposed to feel like that. Then you might start to ignore signals that you are getting from yourself because you're being told that it's just a part of the training. Um, that might lead to results if the one true coach does that with enough students or clients, there's bound to come results out of that. But um, what, is, what is the saying? History is filled with individuals leaving lives in silent misery. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's a bit dramatic, but yeah, there are a bunch of people who've taken coaching that is incredibly strict that dismisses how they're feeling uh, based on the idea that it's supposed to be very, very uh, smart, AKA very, very hard. And I think that we could include more people in this culture, in this community by fostering that type of mindset. But, um, but to get back to your actual question, we still need outside uh, feed, uh, feedback and input. Yeah, it's valuable. And I think this is a beautiful way to tie in the sort of that, that we are social beings and connected as well. And with everything that, that we do, like um, sometimes I think, um, especially when you can get deep into a practice, like you, you think, oh, like I'm the only one doing this or it'd be so good if, you know, I just had like, all the space and the time in the world to do it myself, like deep in the mountains somewhere, but actually <laughs> we're always going to progress the best actually with diversity and people around us. And that can provide that level of feedback all the time. I think, you know, you, you see this all the time when there's a group and everyone comes together and, you know, say they're training all together and uh, there's a really good energy there. All those individuals seem to reach such higher levels and diverse levels versus if there was just like one, one person. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's, it's a power fantasy that uh, a lot of us have. And I think that's mostly based on the stories we're being told and the media that we consume that the the lo the lone strong wolf will always come on top having trained at the top of a mountain uh punishing themselves by whipping bamboo sticks across their faces and and coming out on top despite the fact that they did to, had to do it all alone um it's it's pretty much a guarantee that if you train with people who are strong and capable skillful and who include you in their community that you're going to become stronger uh, than if you had done it on your own so just on this um on this uh topic of community and um i know in your latest email out you've uh, 
said you're also collaborating with some others for upcoming workshops as well. And I really like you actually um, listed out workshops of not only from yourself, but from a, a wide array of teachers as well, which I really appreciated. Um, but yeah, what, what have you sort of, what have you got coming, coming up in terms of that? And uh, how, what have people um, uh, got to look forward to, to if they wanted a bit of the John Ewan experience? Oh dear, do they want that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I have uh, three projects coming up. Um, One is a workshop with uh, Joachim Hillerson and Harry Williams. We're doing a workshop in uh, on the beautiful picturesque island of Ibiza. Uh, So that's coming up. That's happening in in October. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, The second project is also a project with with, uh, Joachim and uh, Harry, but uh, I cannot share any details about that. You'll hear about it in maybe two or three months time. Uh, But yeah, that's where the majority of my, my attention is being directed. Very much looking forward to it. And my third project is basically um, what you mentioned, you know, um, where I listed all the workshops that are happening in the movement space. Um, And it's not just listing all the workshops that are happening in the movement space, but it's about trying to make, um, I feel like the movement space is very fragmented. Uh, Your opportunity to hear about Uh, a person's projects or a person's workshops is entirely dependent on whether or not you follow them on social media, or if you just happen to see someone sharing a post. Uh, So I want to, I want to try, I'm not entirely sure how to do it just yet, but I want to try to make it more of a centralized hub where people can hear more about these things Uh, hear more about different teachers and the various projects they have, maybe even share more of their ideas Um, because nobody's doing it in in the movement space. And I'm doing it because, of course, because of potential clients and potential students and members uh, for their sake, but also I, I want to do it for the sake of the culture. Um, I hope that this will send out a message, uh, which is that to all all of the coaches and uh, service providers in this field, that uh, it's okay. We don't have to compete with one another. We don't have to uh, automatically uh, put ourselves in competition with one another just because we have similar interests or we have workshops at similar dates. There's more than enough uh, clients that can help you financially so that you can continue to work. And there's plenty of people to collaborate with that um, might say no to your ideas, but they might also improve them. I don't, uh, like I mentioned, I don't know exactly how to do it yet, but it's at least starting with these workshops, just listing them out so people know what's happening in the movement space, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Um, Hopefully the end result will be uh, a bit more collaboration in the field. 
I think that's what we were all, um, well, at least uh, I think I'm witnessing and, and, and observing is more people connecting through together and there just needs to be, I guess, more, um, more, more ways, uh, more readily available to help with all this flow of information. Um, because yeah, certainly at least everyone that I've met and spoken to, you know, especially through this podcast have all been lovely people as well. So everyone just all needs uh, wait, more, more ways of knowing what's happening and um, how to, how to connect and, and train with each other because yeah, I mean, every time I go into one of these workshops, it's, it's an awesome time. So uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, John. I really appreciate you sharing all these thoughts and times, you know, I had a, b- a bunch of other thoughts and um, areas that I kind of wanted to question at certain times, but um, you know, that, that that's sort of like uh, just thinking back, this has been such a rich and deep conversation already. And um, I really appreciated all your comments around, especially um, how we push this culture forward positively in a more broader context. So appreciate you have having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And also this is just an open invitation to all, uh, all of you wonderful bipeds out there listening to this. If you do have a project coming up uh, and you are yourself a coach or you're even just considering becoming a coach, uh, feel free to get in touch, uh, to touch with me, especially if you have any workshops or anything similar. Uh, let me know and I'll, um, I'll share it. I'll make it as public as I can. And uh, yeah, I'll do my best to, to support you emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the best, uh, what's your preferred way? Is that, is it via email? It, um, if so, would you like to share that? It's via uh, messenger birds, preferably, uh, but I've yet to receive any. Um, it's because you're catching that I am, that's the issue huh i just had, had a aha moment um we'll have messenger cats instead but yeah uh you feel free to get in touch with me via email john at yuanjohn.com um you can also get in touch with me through my website yuanjohn.com uh but preferably uh owl owl would be cool Al will get definitely get the message through and make you make him notice. So please take that down, <laughs> folks. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Fionn. This was a wonderful conversation. It's been a pleasure just talking to you and getting to know a bit more about you as well. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks, John. Episode 68. That's it. That's all for today. Thanks to John once again for jumping onto the podcast. I hope you guys got something out of it. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, uh, John runs a email a list that you can sign up to on his website. That's yuenjon.com. The email list is called A Body of Work. And yeah, he shares all his thoughts, plus also links to a lot of other various resources out there in the movement world, as well as that list of ongoing workshops so if you want to stay in touch with the whole pulse of the movement community his email list is something that i highly recommend all right guys well thanks to you guys for sticking around all the way to the very end have 
many more episodes and podcasts to come in the near future. I will see you guys in the next one.